Not because of that guy up on the stage, but because God's word is good. Amen? Amen. Here we go. Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. That's understandable, isn't it? The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place that, and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor, for it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the high point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways, to guard you carefully. They will lift you in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him. Until an opportune time. May God bless us as we study his word today. It's important to understand how the previous chapter ended. You remember last week in the message we finished the second half of chapter 3. And in the second half of chapter 3, Luke records for us this genealogy. 75 generations leading up to Jesus' birth. He goes from Jesus, 75 generations back, all the way to the first man ever created by God, and his name was Adam. So he goes all the way back to Adam, and I want you to look there at that last verse in chapter 3. What does it say to end the chapter? It says that Jesus was the son of Adam, the son of God. So I want to share with you this morning that the end verse in chapter 3 is closely linked to what we read in these opening verses of chapter 4. These two are inseparable. You see, there's a link to Adam here. There's a link between the temptation of Jesus and what we just read in that genealogy. Now, you remember that Jesus was not just the Son of God, right? That last verse in chapter 3, he's the Son of Adam, the Son of God. Luke wants us to understand that Jesus was the son of God. And as the son of God, he was 100% God, right? But he also wants us to know that he was the son of Adam. So as the son of Adam, Jesus at the same time was 100% man. Okay, those are your first blanks. If you like ice cream, you may may want to fill those in. So Jesus was the son of God. He was 100% God, but he was also the son of Adam. So he was 100% man. He was the God-man. And Luke wants us to understand that at the end of chapter 3. And also he wants us to understand as we go into chapter 4 here that Adam failed in certain ways, but where Adam failed, Jesus was going to succeed. Uh, Do you remember what happened there in the Garden of Eden? A little sneaky snake, he kind of slithers up to Eve and asks her that important question. Did God really say, 
that you cannot eat from any tree in the garden. Did God really say that? And you remember what happened next, right? Eve started to think about that. Well, maybe it's not that big of a deal. It looks good to eat, and it looks like it's pleasing to the eyes. And so she takes a piece of that forbidden fruit, and she eats it, and then she hands it to her husband, Adam, and Adam eats it as well. And so their eyes are open. They had disobeyed God. Sin entered humankind. And from that point forward, there would be a separation between God and man. So that enemy, the tempter, had come to Adam and he had come to Eve and Adam failed, didn't he? He failed. There in the beautiful garden, Adam had failed. But then several thousand years later, Jesus here in chapter 4, he wouldn't be in a beautiful garden. He would be in a desolate desert, a desolate wilderness. And Satan would come to him and Jesus would be victorious. So I want you to see this contrast that Luke is setting up, a contrast between Adam at the end of chapter 3, who was tempted by Satan and failed, and Jesus at the start of chapter 4, who is tempted by Satan and is victorious. And so it's a beautiful contrast. Yes, he was the son of Adam, but where Adam failed, Jesus would be successful. Remember what went on in chapter 3, verse 15, after Adam and Eve had sinned. God confronts them in the garden, and one by one, he he lowers the boom and he punishes Adam. He says, you're going to have to work hard. The the ground will not produce easily the fruit that you want to grow so you can eat. Uh, You're going to have to pull weeds. You're going to work by the sweat of your brow. He talks to Eve and says, you're now going to have a greatly increased pain in childbearing, and you'll be subject to your husband. And then he talks to that sneaky snake. And you remember what he said to Satan? He says, you're going to slither on your belly all your days. You're going to be cursed above all livestock, all the creatures. You're going to be cursed. And on top of that, God says this in Genesis 3.15. We're going to put it on that screen. I will make you and the woman hate each other. Now, this is so important for understanding the temptations in Luke 4. Let's go ahead and read this together. I will make you and the woman hate each other. Great. Now, everybody. I will make you and the woman hate each other. Her offspring, in other words, her son, will crush your head and you will bite his heel. So God is very clear to Satan there in the Garden of Eden. One of these days, one of these days, this woman, all generation of ladies for the most part are going to hate snakes. There will be some exceptions, but for the most part, ladies hate snakes. He says, there's going to be this hatred for all time. And one of these days, one of her great, great, great grandsons, you're going to be nipping at his heel, and he's going to turn around and crush your head. And so what we see in Luke chapter 4 is clear evidence that Jesus is that descendant of Adam and Eve. And as Satan comes to nip at his heels, it ain't going to work any longer. And Jesus Christ as he overcomes these temptations, is going to crush Satan's head. Okay, with that in mind, let's go ahead and dive into chapter 4 here. Notice what happens in verse 1. Here in verse 1, Luke kind of sets the stage for us. He says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert, where for 40 days he was tempted By the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. 
So in chapter 3, Jesus goes to the Jordan River. John the Baptist is, is finishing up his ministry years. Jesus is just about ready to begin his ministry years. And remember what we saw last week happen. Jesus is baptized. As he comes up out of the water, what is Jesus doing? Remember what he's doing? He's coming out of the water and he's praying. As he is praying, what happens? Heaven splits open and the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove comes down and rests upon Jesus. The Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus for the first time there as he's praying after his baptism. And so as we finish chapter 3, the Holy Spirit has come upon Jesus, and we read here at the top of chapter 4, the Holy Spirit leads him in the desert, but Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit. So by the time we get to the end of verse 1 of chapter 4, the Holy Spirit has come upon Jesus, the Holy Spirit is filling Jesus, and the Holy Spirit is leading Jesus into the wilderness, into the desert, to fast for 40 days and 40 nights and be tempted by the devil. Notice what it says there in verse 2. For 40 days he was tempted by the devil. Many Christians think that Jesus was fasting for 40 days, and after 40 days Satan came and began tempting him. But Luke wants us to understand that during those 40 days he was being tempted. Before we ever get to these three temptations, he was already being tempted over that 40-day period. But these are the three temptations that God wants to highlight, okay? So Jesus gets into the the end of the 40 days. Well, what kind of environment is he in during that period of fasting? I want to put this on the screen for you. This is an actual photo of the Judean wilderness, the place where Jesus most likely was fasting for 40 days. So he's baptized in the Jordan River by John, and he heads south to the Judean wilderness. The Judean wilderness is about 35 miles long, about 15 miles wide. So it's a, it's a fairly large little desert. And it's located between that high point Jerusalem that's built up on a mountainside and the low point, which is actually the lowest place on earth. you remember what it is? The Dead Sea. It's the lowest place on earth, the Dead Sea. And so you have this very low area, and in between that low area of the Dead Sea and that high area of Jerusalem is this vast kind of wasteland, this Judean wilderness, this Judean desert. And throughout that Judean desert, just like most deserts, it's hot. Like most deserts, it's very dry. Can you imagine living in a hot, dry desert for 40 days and 40 nights? Can you imagine? Well, try to stretch your minds a little bit. He's there for 40 days and 40 nights, and it's not like a Sahara-type desert. It doesn't have a lot of fine sand. This desert, the Judean desert, even today if you go and visit it, is filled with jagged rocks and a lot of smooth granite rocks as well. They look kind of like this. So you think of that first temptation that's coming up momentarily. One of these pieces of granite rock that Jesus would have been surrounded by for 40 days and 40 nights... What uh, type of food does it kind of look like? Kind of looks like a little loaf of bread. Kind of like one of those yeast rolls uh, you might get over there at, uh, what is it, a uh, little steak place by the freeway? Ste- not Stierenstein. What's the one with the yeast rolls? Roadhouse. That's what I'm thinking of. Roadhouse, man, they put the butter on top of those bad boys, and they're all fluffy, and you just want to put extra garlic butter on there, and you just eat those, and you say, no, thank you. I don't need to order. I eat 17 rolls. But he's surrounded by these things, and so when Satan comes to him, he is a smart, smart, savvy, sneaky tempter, isn't he? And he knows 
where Jesus is, and he knows that Jesus is hungry. And so Jesus was the Son of Man, not just the Son of God. So as the Son of Man, Jesus was subject to being tired. As the Son of Man, he was subject, like you and me, uh, to be being a little emotionally drained, even spiritually drained. And like you and me, as a son of Adam, he was subject to being very very hungry. And so there Jesus is in this wilderness. In fact, uh, the locals uh, over the years have, have nicknamed this desert uh, Jeshimon. And Jeshimon translates to the devastation. Isn't that a wonderful place to hang out for a month and a half? He's hanging out in this place the locals would call the devastation, a dry, a hot, a, 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 a ugly wasteland. And so that first temptation comes. Satan comes to him as Jesus is tired, as Jesus is dirty, as Jesus is emotionally spent and very, very hungry. And he comes to him in verse 3 and says, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. That's sneaky booger. If you are the Son of God, you could translate that if as since, the Greek is could go either way here. So he may be saying simply, since you're the son of God, go ahead and do it. Go ahead and do it. You're hungry, Jesus. But I want you to notice something else that's really important that makes this temptation especially sneaky. Jesus, just 40 days earlier, had had the Holy Spirit anoint him, right? And all evidence leads us to believe that Jesus was unable to perform a single miracle before the Holy Spirit came upon him at the age of 30 after he was baptized. And so you think about that. Jesus is the almighty Son of God. We find out in Scripture, in Hebrews chapter 1, and even in John chapter 1, that Jesus himself created the universe God the Father said, Jesus, go do it. And Jesus had the hands that created every star, every planet, everything in the universe created by the hands of Jesus Christ. And so that being the case, when Jesus came to earth, according to Philippians, he emptied himself of his power. He emptied himself of his divine prerogatives. And so all evidence leads us to believe that until that Holy Spirit came on him at the age of 30, he was unable to perform a single miracle. So he couldn't open the eyes of a single blind man. Jesus couldn't heal a single sick person. He couldn't raise the dead. He couldn't even heal someone of a little sniffle with their cold. And so imagine Satan knows this, and he knows that now the Holy Spirit is upon Jesus. And there must be part of Jesus that has this desire. There there must be something in Jesus that has this desire to start flexing some of those miracle-working muscles once again. Because, shoot, he's been on a 30-year hiatus. He went from being able to do anything that power could do to being a little baby placed in a manger and for 30 years not being able to do any physical miracles. And so Satan knows this. So he comes to him as Jesus is tired and emotionally spent, and he's dirty and he's hot and he's very hungry. Jesus, if you are the Son of God, Jesus, since you are the Son of God, you've got these all around you. Remember creating this rock? Just turn it into some bread. Doesn't that sound like a good idea? I know you're hungry. Go ahead. Go ahead, Jesus. 
Go ahead and do it. Flex some of those miracle-working muscles. I know you're itching to do it. See, this first temptation kind of boils down to this. You've got the power. You've got the power. So use it. Use it. Do what you feel like doing. You've got the power. Use it. Could Jesus have turned that rock into bread? Like that, no problem. The Holy Spirit was upon him. His miracle working ability was right there. No problem. He could have done it. Now, this wouldn't be a tempting temptation for you and me because we can't do that. I can go like this, and it's going to stay a rock. You just think I'm nuts, but it's still a rock. And I, I can pray all day, and it's going to be a rock. It was tempting for Jesus because he had the power. He could do it like that. Satan knew that. And so he tempts him. He asks him to turn into bread. And what does Jesus say in response? Notice Jesus. He responds with Scripture. And to be precise, it's Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. Jesus says, it is written, man does not live on bread alone. You see, Jesus knew something very important. It wasn't a matter of if he could make that rock into bread There was this one small problem in Jesus' mind, and that one small problem was this. God the Father didn't want him to make that stone into bread. It wasn't the right time. God wanted him to complete his 40 days of fasting. He wanted him to finish his preparations, and then it would be time for Jesus to eat. And so it was the wrong time, and it was the wrong way, and he certainly wasn't going to do it because Satan asked him to do it. He wasn't about to take Satan's advice. He wasn't about to do it. And so when it comes down to it, I think we get an important lesson as Jesus responds in the way that he does. Man does not live by bread alone. At that point in Jesus' life, God the Father had something much more important for him in that moment than bread. And here's that important lesson. We'll put it on the screen for you. It's not enough to do God's will. We must do God's will in God's timing. So important. We must do God's will in God's timing. Kids and teenagers in the room today, it's not okay if your parents say, I want you to do this chore right now, to wait four hours and then do it. Because it's not just about obeying it's about obeying in the right timing and if we're not obeying in the right timing we're not obeying are we if your parents come to you and say you can go do this tomorrow it's not okay to do that today right now because i feel like doing it right now timing is critical it's not obedience if the timing is not god's timing and sometimes we forget that god says i want you to do this now i want you to share your faith with this person across the room I want you to go ahead and meet this person's need. If it's a financial need, a bill's due, or I want you to do it. It's not okay to wait till tomorrow or next week to obey. We have to obey when God says obey. At the same time, it's not okay to jump the gun and say, I'm going to do it now. Jesus was probably going to eat in 10 minutes anyways. He could have said, 10 minutes is no big deal. But no, he was going to obey the Father. The timing was not right. So he resisted temptation number one. So here's how it's looking. Temptation number one comes. Jesus responds with the word of God in Deuteronomy. Man shall not live by bread alone. What does Jesus do? He begins stepping on Satan's head and pressing down just a little bit. One temptation down, two to go. Let's pick up with the second temptation. Second temptation we find in verses 5 through 8. 
the devil led him up to a high place, showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world, and he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor, for it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. It will all be yours. Huh. Why would that have been tempting to Jesus? Just bow down and worship me. Bow down and worship me. It's not that big of a deal, Jesus. It will all be yours. Now, let me ask you, did Satan have the authority to give Jesus all the kingdoms of the world? Not really. Satan is the prince of this world. But the last time I checked, Jesus is king of this world. Satan may be the prince, but Jesus is king of kings and lord of lords. So he really couldn't give Jesus all the kings of the world, but he he sure thought he could. And he wanted Jesus to think he could. And you think of this situation that Jesus was in. He knew before he performed his first miracle of turning water into wine. He knew before he opened the eyes of the first blind man. He knew before he gave his very first sermon. He knew before he went through any of these things in ministry what was coming three years down the road. He knew that he was going to head to the cross. Jesus Christ knew that the path that God had selected for him was a path of suffering. If he was going to truly show himself to be king of kings and lord of lords, if he truly was going to be the king of the Jews, if he truly was going to be the savior of the world, he would have to go through the path of pain and suffering. He knew that. And so when Satan somehow shows him all the kingdoms of the world and says, with one simple act, Jesus, you can have it. You better believe that was tempting for Jesus. Avoid the path of pain and suffering, and you just take the easy way. Here's how I would summarize temptation number two. There is a shortcut to success. Take the easy way and not the way of pain and suffering. You see, this was a temptation of compromise. How often, when we're tempted, are we tempted to compromise? Just about every time. Compromise and temptation go hand in hand. And so he's being tempted to compromise. Certainly as Jesus is tired, as he's emotionally spent, and as he's hungry, the last thing he's excited about doing is having a person that he created spit in his face at the end of his ministry. The last thing that he would be looking forward to is to have some of his creation put a blindfold over him and hit him upside the head and have him ask, Jesus, who hits you? The last thing he would want as he is emotionally spent and tired and hungry here in this wilderness is to think of that person that's going to pick up that cat of nine tails and whip his back and pull off chunks of flesh. Jesus, you better believe this temptation would have been tempting. Because Satan is saying, take the easy way. Take the shortcut. Take the path of least resistance. And Jesus, how does he respond? He responds there in verse 8 by saying, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. It's Deuteronomy 6.13. Worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. Satan, that may be an attractive offer you're giving me, thanks, but no thanks. 
I worship God the Father alone. I serve God the Father alone. And this may be the path of least resistance. This may be a path that's easier. This may be a path that's less painful. But I choose the tough path because that is the path the Father has set out for me. I'm going to worship him. I'm going to serve him. And I am going to obey him. And you're not going to talk me out of it. So here we go. Temptation number two, bow down to me and all the kingdoms of the world will be yours. Jesus says, no, I'm going to worship God and him, him alone. And he presses down with his heel on a little bit more of Satan's head, crushing it just a little bit further. Temptation number two, Jesus once again succeeds. Two temptations down, one to go. And that final temptation we pick up there in verse, what is that, 11? Verse 9, the devil led him to Jerusalem, had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. So somehow he instantly transfers Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple. Now, we don't know exactly which place in the temple it was. Most likely it was one of two options. If Jesus was taken to the highest point above the courtyard of the priests where all the sacrifices would have been done, kind of in the the front patio area of the temple, if he was to jump off of that, it would be about a 150-foot drop down to the court of the priests, the patio below. If Jesus was on the side of the temple at its highest point, that overlooks the Kidron Valley, it would have been a drop into the valley of about 450 feet. So Jesus would have been either 15 stories up or 45 stories up. Either way, you jump off of that, you're going to go splat on the ground below. You're a dead man. But not Jesus. Satan takes him up there and he gives him this alluring temptation. Why would this have been alluring for Jesus? Because once again, it was a shortcut. You throw yourself off in this very public place. All of these hundreds, maybe even thousands of people will be watching and they will see that you truly are the king of the Jews. They will see that you are the Messiah. They will see that you are the man, Jesus. And you don't have to go through all the tough path to convince them you're king of the Jews. So this temptation, I would say, boils down to this. Be the center of attention because God's got your back. Be the center of attention because God's got your back. Some commentators and Bible teachers make the point here that this was really a test of God's love. God, if you really love me, you'll catch me. God, if you really love me, you're not going to let me go splat on the ground below. God, if you really love me, you're going to show yourself to be my protector. That's putting God to the test. It's putting his love to the test. I think that's well said when some people point that out. And so be the center of attention. But you see, Jesus wasn't going to stand for that. Once again, he quoted from the book of Deuteronomy. Each time Jesus quotes from Scripture, each time he says, it is written, it is written, it is written. And he quotes from either Deuteronomy 6 or Deuteronomy 8. Here he quotes from Deuteronomy, uh, let me make sure I've got the right one, chapter 6, verse 16. And he says, it says, do not put the Lord, your God, to the test. It is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And so three temptations, three times Jesus conquers that temptation, and he takes that heel of his and pushes it down a little bit further. And Satan 
goes his own way. In the book of Matthew, chapter 4, this same account is recorded for us. Matthew gives us a few extra details. It says that Jesus, with that third temptation, said, Get away from me, Satan. Some translations put it this way. Be gone, Satan. Jesus might have been tired. His voice might have been a little hoarse. But he had enough strength in him to say, Be gone, Satan. Get behind me. Get out of here. I'm tired of listening to you. And Satan leaves. And then it says there in Matthew 4 that God sent angels to come and attend Jesus. I thought that was pretty well depicted in that little animated version we saw a few minutes ago. Jesus was tempted. He overcame those temptations three times. He refused to put himself in the spotlight by throwing himself off the temple. His life was never about putting himself in the spotlight. His life was about putting God, the Father, in the spotlight. I want to share with you three steps of how we can resist temptation like Jesus resisted temptation here. It's easy when we look at this passage on its own to forget chapter 3. And it's one of the reasons I want to begin this message by talking a little bit about that last half of chapter 3 and what took place because it's important for understanding how Jesus was able to do what he did here in chapter 4. So there's three steps to overcoming temptation like Jesus. Step number one. What did he do in chapter 3 when the Holy Spirit was coming on him? He was praying. We can't forget that. Step number one, we have to pray. We pray. That's the first step to overcoming temptation from Satan. It's important also to know that there are three main sources of temptation that come our way. First of all, just like Jesus here, Satan brings temptation. He is a real live booger. He is not some figment of our imagination He's not a little dude that comes out on October 31st with a little red suit and a red pitchfork. Satan is a real enemy of our souls, the archenemy of God, the archenemy of those who follow God. Satan is the source of many of our temptations, but he's not the only source. The second source is the sinful culture we live in. The world is often the term that Scripture uses to describe it. The world is a source of temptation. Those around us that are turning from God and and have their backs against God, uh, they are oftentimes the ones that lure us into temptation. And then thirdly, according to James 1, our own old nature, our own sinful selves will pull us into temptation at times. And so we've got these three arch enemies of our souls, Satan, the sinful world, and our old sinful natures. And they come against us, and the first way we overcome them is through prayer. The second step, Notice also from chapter 3, not only was Jesus praying, as he was praying, the Holy Spirit comes upon him, right? And as he goes into the desert, he's full of the Holy Spirit. So step number two, we lean on the Holy Spirit. This is critical. If you are a baptized believer and follower of Jesus Christ, if you have committed your life to him, the Bible promises that the Holy Spirit has come into your life. He is your counselor. He's your comforter. He's also your defender. Do not try to overcome temptation on your own. We have to lean on the Holy Spirit just like Jesus did. And then thirdly, we find very clearly here in chapter 3, what was it that Jesus did every time Satan came and tried to tempt him? He started with the words, it is, say those three words with me, it is written, it is is written. Tell the person next to you, it is written. 
By the, word, by the way, quick trivia question for you. With that second temptation, Satan quoted Scripture, didn't he? What Scripture did he quote? Without cheating, without cheating and looking at the bottom. We've got one. Anyone else know? I got to thinking when I was looking at that, you know what? This, this would be bad if Satan knows Scripture better than I do. I don't know about you, but if you look at that scripture that he quoted and you have no idea where it's found in the Bible, hopefully that kind of motivates you to know God's word better than the enemy of your souls knows God's word. Hopefully it inspires you to learn God's word better than the one who hates God's word knows it. He quoted from Psalm chapter 91 verses 11 and 12. You can cross check him. It's not a verbatim quote, but it's pretty close. And he says, you know what? God says he will command his angels concerning you to lift you up in all your ways. But Jesus knew scripture better. And he says, that's completely out of context, Satan. That's not what God intended with those verses. God's word says, and he quotes God's word faithfully as he responds to Satan. We have to stand on God's word. After Jesus was covered with the Holy Spirit, what was the first thing Jesus said according to scripture at the start of his ministry? According to God's word, the first thing Jesus said was, it is written. Isn't that interesting? The very first words of Jesus when he begins his ministry are, it is written. He leaned on the the word of God, and so must we. I want to be honest with you guys. Satan is like an annoying little yappy chihuahua that nips at our heels. Now, most of you probably know this already. I'm a dog lover. I love dogs. But I'm not a huge fan of yapping chihuahuas. My mom, for many years, had toy Pomeranians. And the last toy Pomeranian my mom had, its name was Dustin. She had it up until about 10 years ago. And that dog weighed about four pounds. And whenever you would go up and down the steps of their home, that little dog would be running in circles, and he sounded like this. that's not even a real bark and this thing would run in circles and run in circles and yap and it's the thing was possessed i wanted to have an exorcism with this dog other thoughts were drop kicking but you know i wanted to 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 draw have a a, a serious heart to heart with this thing and then you would walk down into the room where that dog was And he'd be running, and then he'd want to bite at your heels, and it, the little thing's nipping at you. Now, this thing's four pounds. Its mouth is about the size of a peanut. Are you serious? You think you're going to take on someone that's like 170 pounds with a peanut-sized mouth? What's going through this dog's head? And I got thinking about Dustin here this weekend. I was thinking, that's like Satan. He nips at our heels, and he nips at our heels, and he nips at our heels. And we got to do what Jesus did in the power of the Holy Spirit, all prayed up, say, it is written. And we can do what Jesus did and kind of stomp him down a little bit and say, get away from me, Satan. Away with you. Be gone. And we cannot do that in our own strength because Satan is stronger than we are. We can't do that in our own power because he's a lot smarter and stronger than we are. But we can do it in the power of the Holy Spirit prayed up, lifting the word of God in all prayer. He's nipping at our heels. 
And the only way we get rid of that pesky booger is prayed up in the power of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God. Back in 2011, the man in Chicago made a dumb choice. If he had followed these three steps, if he had, number one, made sure that he was prayed up as he glanced down at that money bag, Number two, if he had been listening to the clear leading of the Holy Spirit in his life. And number three, if he had been obeying the clear counsel of the word of God, that if I remember correctly says something like this, thou shalt not steal. He never would have gotten himself into that embarrassing mess. And he would have saved himself 500 bucks in the process, right? When it comes down to it, we follow those three steps. And God will help you overcome the temptations that come your way. It's not a sin to be tempted. Even Jesus was tempted. But it's a sin to give in to those temptations. And when they come, I hope that you will pray. I hope that you'll lean on the Holy Spirit. And I hope that you'll be standing firmly on the unchanging, powerful sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we thank you for giving us the wonderful gift of your word. And I pray, O oh God, that when those temptations come, and they will come, that we would hold fast to your word, prayed up in the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. As our praise team comes back up, if you're here today and you've never made that decision to put Jesus Christ in charge of your life, This is the time of the service we call the invitation time. We invite you to make a decision for Christ. We invite you to get right with God. I don't know what it is about the different seasons of the year, but this has been a very busy season for me for funerals. In the last 11 days, I've done four funerals. And I'm doing one this next Saturday as I was talking to a family member this last few days. She didn't go to church barely believed in God, basically thought that there was a creator out there somewhere, but didn't really know. Husband's an atheist. He'll be at the service next week. And so I have to present a message of hope and the good news with that family. Kind of interesting sometimes that they want a pastor there, even when the closest relatives don't even believe in Jesus Christ, but they wanted a pastor there. So I'll share the good news of Jesus Christ. And I tell you, when I share those services, I find myself saying to myself, I don't think they made it. They rejected Jesus Christ. And when I do those services where I know for a fact that person made the greatest decision anyone could ever make in life, to put Jesus Christ in the driver's seat and to follow him, not just as Savior, but as Lord. I tell you, the hope that it brings me and the burden it takes off my shoulders It's like night and day, the difference between those two types of services. If you're here today and you've been playing around and haven't put Jesus Christ clearly in charge of your life, stop playing around. Put him in charge. Go home today knowing that you are washed clean by the blood of Jesus Christ. That he is truly not just your Savior, but your Lord. You follow him from this point forward. If you need to make that decision, I encourage you to make it now. You just need someone to pray with you. We're here to pray with you. You come to the front or come to the back. Skip's back there if you want to go back to talk to Skip. You let us know if we can pray with you. 
Let us know if we can talk to you about Jesus. Let's stand together.